I will be reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Well, thanks, Nancy. One little note before we start, too. Put it in your calendars. DJ is officially 50 today. It is his birthday. So if you are watching DJ, I almost let it slip. But sorry, buddy. You are officially 50. Happy birthday. So as we start today, we'll be looking at the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. So Paul, we know, is the author of this letter to the church in Corinth. He knows the audience to whom he is writing. He knows the city of Corinth, and it's a successful marketplace. He knows they're very sensually minded. They're into trying new things and new feelings. And he knows this area, prior to its Roman government, was under Greek rule. And with that came the Greek philosophers with their views on wisdom. Their views of the gods were plural. There was no god that couldn't be in the crowd. So in all these circumstances, there were still yet some believers that formed a church in that city. But, like all things in every church, some issues have arisen. There's divisions over who should we follow, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Peter? Or what's marriage like? Or what are some ethics we have in the church? Or the Lord's Supper? Or how does, what's the rule of worship in a church? And lastly, the resurrection Where we find ourselves today, at least in chapter 3, is the beginning of his letter. He's still kind of setting it up to work his way through. It's still kind of an introduction here. But keep in mind this. Even though you have all these issues, who we're going to follow, who we're going to do this, who we're going to do that, we're going to not honor marriage, we're going to have these ethical issues, we're not going to honor the Lord's Supper, and some don't even believe in the resurrection, he still, to a point, says of the church, To those who believe in Christ, you are a holy people. An immature people, maybe, but they are still called a holy people nonetheless. So, verse 18 starts off with the phrase, Let no one deceive himself. I kind of thought I knew what deceive meant, so then I thought, let's confirm my bias and see if it's in the dictionary. It is a dictionary word, and the definition is to trick or give a false impression. So what he's saying is, let no one trick himself or give a false impression of himself. Why? Well, false impressions cause many problems. First, it could lead to a belief in one's own ability and lead to a very puffed up feeling of pride. Or it could lead to a lifestyle that's not good or pure in God's sight. 
And Paul's concern when he writes the churches is that they would not embrace false teaching and end up rejecting the Christ who bought them with his blood on the cross. So in in some studies, we've learned about a thing called the trifold enemy. There's three against you, the world, the flesh, the devil. And their goals are deception to no end. We'll start with the most obvious is the devil or Satan. He is our obvious enemy because we know him quickly in the scriptures. He quickly comes to our parents, Adam and Eve, and deceives them into eating the fruit, which leads to the fall of humanity and sin being brought into the world. But praise God that he sends his son to crush the head of the serpent. But his work, Satan, is not done. He still roams about to deceive us today. He tries to get us to believe that we're fine when we're not. No wonder he comes as an angel of light. He could have done it so that we had every comfort in the world except no Christ. There's a guy that was a minister in Philadelphia back in the 50s, I believe, and he said this about, he was asked on CBS radio, what would it look like if Satan took over Philadelphia? And he said this, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday, but the church would not preach the gospel of Christ. It missed the key element. Everything else was fine, but it just missed the key element of faith. It was missing Christ. That is his deception, and it's a very smart move, which is kind of why I chose the a Mighty Fortress, where it talks about how, how on earth none is his equal. He is very smart, but we know our enemy, and we know who conquers our enemy. Next is the world, the world with its deceptions. You're not blind. You watch the news like I do. We see that we are a growing minority, and that's okay. The world wants us to believe that happiness can be found in things, not God. There's a country song that was popular, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago. And the song states, money can't buy you happiness, but it can buy you a boat. While a boat does bring some temporary joy, I don't see people you know, frowning or crying on a boat. Usually it's all smiles. It's only temporary. We're not fully satisfied. We want more. Now, if you have a boat, don't read me wrong. You may invite me on your boat anytime, and I won't be negative and say, like, oh, this is only temporary pleasure. I will still have a good time. But just so we know the distinguishing mark between God's blessing on all the things we own, but ultimate satisfaction in God himself. Or like this, in John 4, when Jesus meets the woman at the well, he tells her, if you drink from this well, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give, you will never thirst again. His offer is to believe in him that he gives satisfaction. That is amazing kindness offered to us when we deserve more like judgment and death 
Our final enemy is our own flesh. We have these desires that are so ungodly sometimes and we set ourselves up. We think that we can do it on our own. We tell ourselves we are born this way. And that's partly right because we are born with sinful nature. But that is hardly what is meant by people who use that statement. The statement that I am born this way. They kind of use that as an excuse into sinning more. Well, I was born this way. I'll just keep doing all the bad things instead of changing my ways. So Paul says in 2 Timothy, they give the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And he says to avoid such people. All the while, a just and holy God is containing His wrath on us for the day of judgment. And yet, in His kindness, He restrains judgment. It is an amazing act of kindness. That the fact that God doesn't judge us right away in His holiness, He holds Himself back from judgment. That is an amazing God who can be fully just, fully loving, fully holy, all at the same time. That's the God we serve. So we see here that believers in Christ, there's so many things coming at us, the world, flesh, devil, that is trying to put us off course. I don't know if you guys have read this book, Pilgrim's Progress. But in the book, the the character Pilgrim, or Christian is his name, depending on which one you read, he has a burden on his back because he started reading this book, which is the Scriptures. And he meets this guy, Evangelist. And Evangelist is trying to lead him to the path of salvation to get rid of this burden. And he gets in this slow of despair where he finds himself really low point as a man. And he gets out and he runs into another man. His name is Worldly Wisdom. And Worldly Wisdom gives Christian his advice to go and get rid of his burden in the town of morality where there's honest people. The housing's cheap. Everything in this town will make your life pleasant. And Christian says to him, well, I'm just trying to get rid of my burden. And worldly wisdom says, well, did you read that in a book? And he says, yes, I read it in this book. And he shows him the book and it says the book of life. And worldly wisdom condemns him as a fool for reading this book. For if you follow the words in that book, it leads to pain. Christian takes worldly wisdom advice. And he goes towards a city of morality, but he's confronted by evangelist who says, why are you off track? And he brings him back on track. And he says this in his judgment on worldly wisdom. He is rightly named worldly wisdom, for he is wise in the world, but he knows nothing of what's to come. And he loves the teaching of this world best. And because he loves it best, it shields him from the cross. So the point in all this is that the world's wisdom will always find itself at odds with God's wisdom. God's wisdom is the cross, forgiveness in the cross. The world's is deception. So what do we do with this information? Do not be deceived. We're only part A into it. And Joe said I couldn't go for 20 hours, but good luck. We'll see how we do. What are we to do with this? Is there any hope for us? The setup is that don't be deceived. Well, okay, now we know our enemy, but what's the hope? What can we do? Well, good thing the Lord continues sentences in the Bible. The finishing part of it is, Any of you who thinks he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So is it saying in order to get God's wisdom, we just have to become fools? 
You can ask Amber. I'm pretty much a fool all the time. So what sense is there in that? Be foolish to be wise? Why would anyone do such a thing? But it is always the simple things that seem so difficult. There's a commentator that I like reading about with 1 Corinthians, and he says this about this switching your wisdom for God's wisdom. Become a fool that you may become wise. He says this, Let him renounce his own wisdom in order that he may receive the wisdom of God. We must be empty in order to be filled. We must renounce our righteousness in order to be clothed with Christ's righteousness. We must renounce our strength in order to be made strong. We must renounce our wisdom in order to be truly wise. We would not be required to renounce our own righteousness, strength, wisdom if that was really what they were. But simply because they are worthless, we are called to disregard them. So our wisdom is not truly wisdom. The trading of our wisdom for God's wisdom seems just like what Jesus says in Luke 9 where he says, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life will save it. It all seems so upside down. But maybe, maybe it's us that are upside down to begin with. So verse 19 and 20. The wisdom of this world is foolish in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. The wisdom of the world is foolish in God's sight. That just shows how great and awesome God is. His wisdom, so much higher than ours. As it says in Psalm 50, You thought I was exactly like you. Or Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Or at the end of Job, you know, where Job is wanting a meeting with God to plead his innocence. And God meets with him in chapter 38 out of the whirlwind and questions him to no end. And it just shows us that God is not like us. Yet, in his mercy, he uses us. We are his creation. Who are we to talk back to the creator? He is not like us. He's perfect, eternal, all-knowing, everywhere, all-powerful. His perfect character is on display in the perfect life of his son Jesus. His death on a cross where Jesus takes the wrath and judgment of God on himself. And in his death and resurrection and in all that he gives us. His righteousness, that when the Father looks at us, He looks at us like He's looking at His Son in love. That to the world is foolish. Why would God do such a thing? They believe that salvation can come through human knowledge and education of that knowledge. But if that were the case, all our students by now in the public school system should be, they should be saved and fully fit for heaven. They have so much information nowadays, and yet we might be a bit lost. We know it's not true. We know that salvation is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Heaven is for those that God has opened their eyes to His truth and that we see the beauty of His Son. We see this as wisdom. This is the wisdom that brings salvation to all of us who have repented of our sins and committed ourselves, mind, body, spirit, fully to the Lord. For in the Lord is our satisfaction. He alone is the all-wise God. So what Paul's getting at is this. Let us stop boasting in men. What is man but a created being of God? Why elevate man to a position that he was not meant to have? It's only meant for God to have the elevated position. And in this Corinthian church, we see it as well. We saw those divisions. I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. And their, their faction. Like, I bet if we split the church up, you'd have like a tripart. That's the Paul crowd. That's the Apollos. And that in the back is Peter's. Their divisions were so strife in the church. It was, it was nuts. But yet Paul says, all of us are instruments of God to your benefit. So the same for this church. We're all instruments to the benefit of the church. We are Christ's, and Christ is God. And it's not just, you know, us up front. You are in this as well. We are all instruments of God to proclaim His Word to the world. So our boast shall be in the Lord. So what do we do with all this? I put three things. I had five, but I narrowed it to three. First, we'll seek the Lord and ask for wisdom. In James it says, if you lack wisdom... Ask God who gives graciously. Without finding fault, He'll give it to you. So we seek the Lord in all things. Second, let's not trust or put our trust in mankind. We have leaders. We have presidents, kings all around the world and so on. They are put there by God as stewards for righteousness. God judges justly. They are going to answer to him one day, just like we are going to answer to him one day. They are put there in authority by God. Let's not elevate them to the position that they did not deserve. We do this pretty often. And it is often to our demise that we do this. So let's step back, see our error, and see that Christ is really the king on the throne. And finally, we should see how powerless we are to rely on ourselves to share such a great message of hope with the world. God uses the weak things to shame the strong. And He can do so with you, and He can do so with me in sharing the message of Jesus with everyone we come into. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is perfected in our weakness. He's the wise one, the powerful one, the almighty one. Us? We know who we are. We can take this advice and learn to be content with all the hard times in our life, knowing that the power of Christ is with us. See, Jesus is the ultimate example of weakness being made strong. He came to the earth as an infant. 
ultimate weakness. He was powerless. And yet, we are weak in him as well. But by God's power, we will live with him. And right now, we're called to serve others and love others. So then, in sharing this message to the world, this message of hope, let's apply that knowing it's not up to us to win people over by having you know, the power of persuasion, winning the argument. It's through prayer that the Spirit would awaken people to their, their need of Christ. I think I told you this one before, but I like it so much, so I have to say it again. Billy Graham, back early in his ministry, was very distressed at seeing how he thought he had to work so hard to get people to believe in Christ. And one day it kind of hit him, I'm just going to pray more for them and pray way ahead of time that God will open their eyes to their need of him. And now we see the benefits of the Billy Graham International Ministry where he realized to rely on God to do the work. That can be our case as well. I'm sure we have friends, family members, co-workers, anyone like that that you want to know that comes to the Lord. Keep praying for the person. Don't give up. Don't stop telling them about Jesus either, though. But make prayer a hand-in-hand priority. I will share the good news and I will pray fervently for their salvation. I'm sure in my life there's many a people who prayed for me and I'm very ignorant of it. Don't give up praying. Don't give up relying on God's wisdom, on His power and timing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the great and marvelous God that saves us by your Son, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you for your word that teaches us to trust you more and to seek you in all things. Help us in our weakness to rely on you and in our desire to see our neighbors and friends and family members and co-workers at our jobs come to faith in you. Be our guide Be our strength to share your message to a dying world that desperately needs you. We thank you again for this wonderful gift you have given us in Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.